Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Down here in Louisiana, we love any excuse for a party. Our very Catholic culture dictates that Ash Wednesday is supposed to usher in 40 days of fasting and abstaining. But thanks to some Catholic saints whose feast days always fall during that Lenten period, our party here just continues. First comes St. Patrick's Day, when everyone is Irish for the day, and of course, here in New Orleans, there's a parade. Then, just two days later on St. Joseph's Day, it's the Italians' time to party. They erect giant meatless food altars honoring St. Joseph, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. And of course, here in New Orleans, there's a parade. Irish historian Laura Kelly joins us to talk about the Irish angle, while New Orleans-born Sicilian Laura Guccione reveals secrets of the 19th century St. Joseph Day celebrations that will shock you. The story even involves Rex, king of carnival. And our New Orleans Jewish population also joins the springtime celebration with Mardi Gras-style fun of their own. B'nai Bernstein explains the festive tradition of Purim and the delicacies that go along with it. So grab a pint of Guinness and pass the hamantaschen. We're celebrating all the springtime holidays on this week's Louisiana Eats. Hi, my name is Laura Guccione, and I am a researcher of New Orleans and Sicilian culture. Laura Guccione is simply a fount of knowledge when it comes to Louisiana history. Her own family hails from Alia, Sicily, where she maintains close relationships with cousins and other family members today. That Sicilian heritage always shines through in her Louisiana history research. St. Joseph whose feast day is celebrated on March 19th, has well-known ties to Sicily. He's their patron saint, the one credited with saving those island dwellers from starvation during the Middle Ages. That's why you'll still see elaborate food altars erected in his honor every year on March 19th. Laura and her sister Anne built many a St. Joseph altar over the years, but it was in researching the history behind our local customs that Laura made a remarkable discovery, tying together St. Joseph's Day and New Orleans' fancy dress carnival balls. Laura took us back in time to help us understand today's traditions and those that didn't quite take hold. Laura, let's begin by explaining what is Mikahem. 
Okay, so Mikurem is literally mid-Lent in French. And mid-Lent was a huge holiday all over Latin Catholic countries. And New Orleans in the 1800s was still holding on to its Latin Catholic traditions, even though we were already a state of the Union from the early 1800s. So mid-Lent was the one day during Lent that people could dance, eat, drink, and do all those things that Lent you just couldn't do during Lent. Forbidden by the Catholic Church, because, of course, when you say Latin, we're talking about the French and the Spanish. And it shocked me to learn that St. Joseph's Day actually belonged to the Creoles and was a big Creole thing long before the Sicilians ever began their influence here in New Orleans. How did that begin? Tell me about this. What I believe happened is that there was already, Mid-Lent was being celebrated in New Orleans, which is literally like the day in the middle of Lent. And one year it must have fallen on St. Joseph's Day. So all of a sudden uh, you start, you see ads for these masked balls on St. Joseph's Day, but they're referring to Mid-Lent and St. Joseph's Day. It's kind of confusing, but what I think happened is that in New Orleans and only in New Orleans, Midland becomes confused with St. Joseph's Day and it just stuck. By the 1870s, they're starting to sell the idea of St. Joseph's Day here. Yes. Yes. There's an article. Actually, there's a few ads also that say, this is your chance. Come to New Orleans and see New Orleans as it is during Carnival, I guess, but not during Carnival when it's not as busy. And they're saying March 19th, St. Joseph's Day. These balls are put on by the same people who do Mardi Gras, so they're definitely selling it, trying to sell St. Joseph's Day just like Mardi Gras had been sold. Well, in your research, you discovered the most interesting thing, and perhaps it was just this one year, but in 1887, Rex gets involved with St. Joseph's Day. Yes. And um, I had seen something written about this a few years back where they thought that the reason they had this ball was because Mardi Gras was so late that year. But no, I think it was because this was a first and only attempt of a carnival crew to have a ball on St. Joseph's Day, St. Joseph's Night. And it was Rex in full force, purple, green and gold in the whole thing, huh? Yeah, and they actually costumed that night. The people who rode on the floats could wear their costumes, which was very strange because I don't think no, they don't even they don't even have a costume ball on Mardi Gras night. So this was there were a lot of things that that were just wild about this uh, night in 1887 with Rex because they had their ball at the French Opera House, the St. Joseph's Night Ball, which they never had a party there before. They allowed costumes in, which usually they're they're if I don't know if you're familiar with the Rex ball, but it's um it's black tie and tails. It's not costumes. So that right there, I believe, eighteen eighty seven, you see how important St. Joseph's Night was in the city that even Rex honored the holiday with a ball. There it surprised me that there was even a St. Joseph's Day ball put on by Ladies of Portuguese descent? 
Oh, yeah. Through the 1800s, there are, I have a stack of papers of ads that everyone get. I mean, it was, I have the butchers gave a ball, Portuguese. I mean, it just seemed like everyone. I mean, you name the organization. It was also a big night for fundraising. So a lot of the benevolent societies, Economy Hall, they said that that was their second biggest night of the year after after Car- Mardi Gras. That's when they made a lot of money. So, I mean, it was it was a big night for everyone. And these balls are being advertised because they're open to the public, different from the private closed balls of what we know now as the traditional Mardi Gras in New Orleans, correct? Yeah, most of these balls would be, I think a lot of them would be, the men would have to pay to get in and ladies were free. Of course, of course. At the same time that we're talking about, the late 1800s, this is when the great influx of Sicilians come in. Laura, do you think that there is something about those Sicilians and their ties to St. Joseph that create a situation where it becomes a Sicilian thing and not so much an everybody thing? Okay, so St. Joseph's Day becomes affiliated with Sicilians, but not till much later. In the late 1800s, you do see Italian organizations having balls on St. Joseph's Night, but they have nothing to do with, you don't see altars mentioned at all. So they are involved. And I think with the influx, there's a change. Uh, Suddenly the holiday is a more religious holiday. It's celebrated during the day, and there are altars. But that is, it's much later. Because the Sicilians, perhaps they might actually be sort of horrified by the irreverence of the fancy dress balls and such, because they're very serious about their St. Joseph, aren't they? Yeah, and and in fact, in one of the articles, they they do say that St. Joseph, the patron saint of Italy, which isn't true, uh-huh. he's patron saint of Sicily, but not Italy. So they do say, oh, that's why they're celebrating this. And they were doing processions in the late 1800s, but also followed by a ball. So the first role of like St. Joseph's Day in New Orleans with the Italian community or the Sicilian community was more in line with what was happening already. And then it isn't until later that the altars really start appearing. And I don't know if it's because, I believe it's probably because people are coming from these towns that celebrate St. Joseph's Day in larger, you know, greater quantities than before. Because, I mean, uh, St. Joseph's Day in Sicily is not a huge, huge holiday. There are bigger saint holidays. I think it's that where these people are coming from that the altars really start to take off later. Because these altars start in Sicily hundreds and hundreds of years ago because of a famine. Do you want to talk about Sicily and St. Joseph altars? Sure. So, I mean, the story is, because it's kind of folklore, that during the Middle Ages there was a great famine in Sicily and that... They prayed to St. Joseph to save them from the famine, and then it rained. And then the fava bean grew, and like that's the importance of the fava bean. They ate the fava bean, which was originally like fodder for animals. So 
they had promised St. Joseph that if he saved them, that they would build these altars to him as thanks. And later on, you do see that altars are built either, they're usually built for thanking St. Joseph for something or asking St. Joseph for something. That seemed to be a big reason to build altars to St. Joseph. That St. Joseph altar tradition here in New Orleans is still so strong. Um, Would you tell me some happy memories of St. Joseph altars that you have or some of your favorite things about them? Oh, sure. So um, 2005, before Katrina, um, Father Ledoux at St. Augustine asked my sister and myself if we would like to build an altar there because they'd never had an altar. But there is, like, on one side of the church, there's a huge St. Joseph statue, which later I found out came from France in, I believe, the mid-1800s. And um, so I was like, sure, you know, this is great. This is wonderful. So we did it. And it was after, you know, we fed the neighbors and it was all these neighbors came out. And I was like, you know, I'm going to ask them why the Indians come out on St. Joseph's night, because it's a question that, I, I mean, as far as I know, no one's ever really answered. And I asked all these older people who remember going into the homes of the older Sicilian families, you know, being invited into their homes to, you know, go view their altar and eat. And all of them said the same thing. They said, well, we think the Indians come out because the Sicilians were doing their thing that day. And I was like, I don't know, that just didn't seem right to me. And so through my research, I've figured it out, and I've, I've answered my own question of why. Why is it? So it all leads back to these balls. So St. Joseph's Night, you know, mistakenly called St. Joseph's Night, is really mid-Lent in New Orleans. So everyone dressed up on St. Joseph's Day, ah. mid-Lent. So... I asked an older, a neighbor of mine who grew up in the Treme, and he's almost 90 years old, and I said, so, I said, Mr. Jacques, what did you, what do you remember about St. Joseph's Day when you were a kid? And his eyes lit up, and he said, oh, I'm going to tell you, he goes, it wasn't just Indians that came out that night. It was skeletons, baby dolls. He goes, I wore my costume that day, and I was like, I had, I had seen a few references of this in books, but... No one's ever run with it, so I thought, oh, you know, it's probably nothing. And sure enough, when I started doing my research, it's right there that this was a big costuming holiday, and it was not just everyone came out. In costume for St. Joseph's Day. And in my book that I'm working on, there's a whole cast of characters that would come out that aren't around anymore, which is – it, which is – it just makes this all more – it's just so – it's so exciting. Like who? (laughs) Well, um, there was a group. I'm not gonna tell you all of them, but there was like a group called the Jolly Boys, uh huh, and and they were like a black Rex organization. Really? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It was just a big part of everybody's day, Italian or not, right yeah. here in New Orleans. For people who might not know, what goes into building an altar? What do you have to do? Well, it's a lot of organizing. And the physical altar is usually three tiers representing, you know, the Trinity. It's weird. In Sicily, they use white tablecloths. Here, people do a little bit more color. 
but you always have flowers, lots of food, all these fancy breads, baked items, and no meat. And it was really nice because a lot of the neighbors would bring like statues of, oh, this is my favorite saint. Oh, this is something that means something to me. Another tradition is to put pictures of the recently deceased on it. So we had a lot of the neighbors bring photographs and um, palm leaves. And in the old days, if there was a palm leaf over a door, that meant they had an altar at the home. Because these really started off as home altars. Having them all over the, you know, in churches even, were that's a later, a later thing. Well, there is so much to learn and know about St. Joseph's Day and Mardi Gras Day. Whoever knew that they were that similar? I'm surprised. And I'm so glad you've been able to reveal some of this and demystify it for us. Thank you. It's always fun to see you and hang out. Laura Guccione, researcher of New Orleans and Sicilian culture. Coming up next, we celebrate St. Patrick's Day with Laura Kelly, author of The Irish in New Orleans. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to join the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. For more than 300 years, people from all over the world have called New Orleans home. In the past several years, there's been an upsurge of interest in the history and culture of the Irish here in New Orleans. Some of this can be attributed to historian Laura Kelly, whose book, The Irish in New Orleans, chronicles the stories of Irish immigrants in the Crescent City. In honor of St. Patrick's Day, Laura joined us to discuss what she's discovered in her years of research on the topic. 
Originally, it surprised me quite a bit to even find out that there were Irish in New Orleans, that there was this whole, you know, immigrant and ethnic group here, as I think it does many people. First time I tell people that my book, you know, The Irish in New Orleans, they say, the what? The who? You know, <laughs> what? New Orleans, it's, it's, it's French, Spanish, Creole. And they say that like it's one word. But New Orleans has such incredibly rich history, and the Irish are an important component of that. So when do the Irish really become an important part of New Orleans? That's a great question. So the Irish are here from the early French colonial period through the Spanish. But when do you move from being just a group of individuals who happen to be Irish to an you know ethnic community, a community? We look at different markers to say, okay, this is when it's come together. And one of them is, of course, St. Patrick's Day. When do you celebrate a public feast day or saints day that's associated with a particular group? And the earliest one here in New Orleans that I found documentation for is in March of 1806. So that is, yeah, so think about it. You know, we did the whole transfer with Louisiana Purchase in December of 1803. So this is two and a half years later. And Governor Claiborne is there and various judges and other political people. So very similar to today. Certainly from 1806 forward, you see a lot of this continual public celebration of St. Patrick's Day. It may have happened earlier, um, but we don't have that many newspapers and it's hard to find evidence for Other indications are when you build a church, when you have a charitable organization. So all of these things. And certainly um, charitable organizations happened in the 18-teens and St. Patrick's is built in 1833. So certainly by 1833, there is a strong Irish community here. But probably I would say earlier, recognizable one. Everybody who's familiar with New Orleans is familiar with that uh, area that we call the Irish Channel. Yes. How did that become the Irish Channel? Well, first of all, you have to define where is the Irish Channel. Well, that's true. And you've got, a, you've got a map for us in your book, right? I do have a map. And it's a map, if you notice, the borders move quite a bit. It's a very fluid map. Um, it's, it's, the Irish Channel is fascinating because New Orleans is known for its neighborhoods, and they're known for their neighborhoods having very distinct boundaries from this street to that street. And the Irish Channel is not that way. It's completely different. You know, people in the 18, excuse me, in the 1930s and 1940s were arguing that it was only Adele Street, just two blocks of Adele Street, which is now unfortunately underneath Walmart on Chapatulis. And others said it was broader from Jackson to Felicity. Um, and, of course, the Historic Landmark Society came in and removed that, and they moved it from you know Jackson towards Louisiana. Um, for me, a couple of different things are important to look at. If you want to know where any Irish community is in any city, look where their church is. And St. Alphonsus, located on Constant Street, is in the heart to me of the Irish Channel. And that's in that location between Jackson and Felicity. Um, And it was a church that was built with Irish sweat and Irish pennies and built by those famine immigrants, as was St. John the Baptist and Saints Peter and Paul over on the other side of town. Um, So that gives you an indication of where, where the Irish community was expanding upon and how you can kind of connect the dots. But the Irish Channel, per se, the first documentation we have of when that term is used, again, public documentation, is in 1893 in a newspaper article. And the fellow being interviewed uses it as if it's been used in 
common practice for a long time, but he's very vague on the boundaries. He kind of makes it sound like it's from Canal Street upriver. So there is no real definition. I think the Irish Channel is where the Irish heart is. (laughs) Well, why did the Irish people settle there? Before the Civil War and at the height of this Irish immigration to the United States, New Orleans had per capita more Irish than Philadelphia, Baltimore, Chicago, and was on par with Boston. Um, And there might even be a little debate if we actually had more than Boston. So New Orleans was really quite the Irish city. And why come here? It's a bustling economic engine. And where did they settle? You settle where work is. You know, we're living in, um, certainly then, in a walking city. And so where you live, where you work, where you go to church, where you send your children to school, is normally all within walking distance. And while the Irish were involved in every type of occupation from, you know, from a drayman to a doctor to a teacher to a laborer, um, many of them worked in the port. And that was, you know, New Orleans was the second largest port in America. And so if you're working in the port, you're living near the port, and where's the Irish Channel? I mean, one thing that people do agree upon, it's below magazine, right? Mm -hmm. So you're not that far from the river. You have a whole chapter in the book that you call Irish Influence on the New Orleans Culinary Landscape. Mm -hmm. What is the Irish Influence? (laughs) That is a great question, and I think you have to approach it from a lot of different ways. Um, The Irish are known um, for actually their absence of foodways. If you look at the Italian, they have very strong foodways. And we associate certain dishes automatically. With the Irish, what do you associate with them? Potatoes <laughs> and more potatoes. But we don't really have any famous New Orleans potato dishes, do no, we? No, we don't. And there aren't any more famous you know, potato dishes, to be fair, uh, to the Irish. And, I, and when I say an absence of foodways... The reason for their mass migration to the United States was the failure of one crop. It was the potato crop. And then you have to stop and ask yourself, how does the failure of one crop affect mass migration? Food is still being grown in Ireland. Mm. Well, it affects it when 60% of your population is eating solely or mainly just potatoes. How did they eat them? Two main ways, gruel or baked potato. And this was out butter and salt or pepper or anything. And so you have a devastation of a crop. You come to America, and your association with food is famine. You know, your main one food source is famine. And when you study the Irish, what's one of the first things they do when they come to America? They become everybody's cooks. Uh, And I think one of the reasons they become their cooks is because they're like, teach me what you want. (laughs) uh You know, they're kind of a tabula rasa. They're a blank slate. And I think in the city, what you see are individual Irish people who influence food in their own way, but not necessarily in in, um, a way that we would consider an Irish food way. Of course, you know, as we search for those uh, thin culinary threads in New Orleans, there's one thing that it is not difficult to search for at all because you can stumble across one in certainly every neighborhood, and that's the Irish bar. Oh, pub, please. Yes, okay. Pub, please. All right, okay. There's a a difference between a pub and a bar. Um, You know, a pub is is where you go when you want to share good news. A pub is where you go when... You have really bad news and you want to just be with friends. It's, you know, 
an extension of your living room. And we have many of them here in the city, which is very good news for us. And I think that is a true Irish Institute because the first place an Irish-born person today, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, whenever would have done when they arrived new in the city is they would have found the first Irish pub. And then they would have announced who they were, find out if there's anybody from their part of Ireland, look for a place to stay, look for work. In other words, that was your port of entry, you know, the church and a pub. And today, the church doesn't play that role really to the same degree, but a pub does. And a pub is very important to, I think, the Irish psyche because, you know, over, over 100 million Irish people, you know, make up the diaspora. And with the economic downturn 2008, Ireland again began hemorrhaging people. And um, and so when you're a stranger in a strange land, finding a comfortable, familiar place is very important. And that's what a pub does. Take us on a little virtual pub crawl. Um, <laughs> just give us the highlights of some of your favorite Irish pubs and what makes one different from the next. Okay, see, now you're going to make me choose, like, favorite children here, you know. I know, that's, that's not fair. That's but, not fair. Just off the top um, of your head, give us a little waltz around. Well, if we, weren't, if we weren't going to worry about distance, okay, we're not literally walking from one place to the other, although we could definitely sober up <laughs> <laughs> in between these places. Um, Finn McCool's would be my starting point. And I would start with Finn's, and then you've got sort of the holy ground that's not very far away in Mid-City. I would definitely go to the Cary in the Quarter, without a doubt. Um, the Aaron Rose. And as I'm working my way through the Quarter, I'd stop at Molly's, of course. Of course you'd have to stop, uh, at, stop at Molly's. For and raise, a frozen Irish coffee. And <laughs> raise a toast to Jim Monaghan. Um, what a guy. And then, you know, we have um, we have Henry's and looking into looking into that and seeing that four generations of you know, one family um, pulling some draft beer and giving some whiskey to, to all of us. And whiskey, to me, is actually a great Irish foodways. Whiskey in, in Gaelic means the water of life. And that, I think, kind of says it all. <laughs> <laughs> So how did St. Patrick's Day get to be such a big thing? So you find that, you know, barely two years after the Louisiana Purchase, they're having a St. Patrick's Day celebration of some sort. Well, when did it turn into the rollicking circus that it is today? If you mean like parading, um, then we have the Ancient Order of Hibernians to thank for that. And they form after the Civil War. Um, it's part of a national organization, but we get our Louisiana chapter in the 1870s, so during Reconstruction. And they are the ones who start the proper marching, proper parading, going down Canal Street. And they carry that through into the 20th century. And then the then tax assessor, Dickie Burke, and his brother, right after World War II in 1947, formed the Uptown Irish Channel St. Patrick's Day Parade Club. And they're the ones who said, you know, we got to move this just away from Canal. We've got this huge Irish community here. We need to have our own parade. 
Well, I really am so thrilled that we were able to have this conversation Me with too. you at such a timely place in the year, that that month that's all Irish, well, when it's not Italian, the month yeah. of March. Gosh, it's fun to live here, isn't it? It is. I wouldn't <laughs> live anywhere else. I wouldn't. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Historian Laura Kelly author of The Irish in New Orleans. Back across the ocean to my home, away from home. I'm glad to be returning, but sad to have to go. I'd like to find a way to be two places at one time. But it's easy going back again, but it's hard to say goodbye. What was the cause of the great Irish potato famine? We'll answer that question and explore that dire time when we come right back. On board the plane, I sip to drink while waiting for the meal. Just trying not to let my head know how my stomach feels. I'm Poppy Tooker. And you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What was the cause of the Great Irish Potato Famine? First, it's important to note that from the late 1700s on, the poor in Ireland subsisted entirely on one variety of potato. An average Irishman ate 14 pounds of boiled potatoes every day. But in September of 1845, when the annual potato harvest was about to begin, Without warning, the leaves of the potato plants began to curl up, turn black, and rot. The plants actually began to ferment, creating a nauseating stench across the land. At first, when the farmers dug up the potatoes, they appeared to be fine, but within days, they shriveled up and rotted. The culprit was an airborne fungus that quickly spread across Ireland in the cool, moist air. That first year, the poor Irish survived by selling their livestock and pawning off their meager belongings. But when the crop failed entirely in the second year, the great starvation set in. Irish in the countryside began to live off wild blackberries and ate nettles, turnips, 
old cabbage leaves, edible seaweed, roadside weeds, and even green grass. Tragically, the populace sickened and began to die. The lucky ones made it to America, the land of plenty, where today they're an important part of this country's cultural heritage. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. This year, before the Catholic feast days of St. Joseph and St. Patrick, there's the Jewish feast of Purim. Sometimes called Jewish Mardi Gras, Purim is a fun and festive holiday that celebrates the triumph of good over evil. New Orleanian B'nai Bernstein loves celebrating the festival of Purim. In the early days of our show, B'nai gave us an introduction to this holy day, one unlike any other on the Jewish calendar. I'm just delighted to be here and to talk about our wonderful holiday, Purim. Purim is a true festive time, very much akin to Mardi Gras. We have dressing up in costume, people drink and eat and are merry because we're celebrating the fact that the Jewish people were once again saved. What happened was, before the Common Era, there was a town of Shushan, and King Ahasuerus and his wife, Queen Vashti, didn't get along, and he decided to get a new queen, and he had a big contest, and all the beauties of the land came, and he chose Queen Esther. Now, Esther was a Jewish young maiden, but he didn't know that. That was something you didn't make public, and Esther's guardian, Mordecai, worked around the court. One day, Mordecai overheard some plotting against the king, and he told the right authorities, and the plotters were apprehended. Mordecai had done a great deed on behalf of the king, but he was never rewarded for his good work until one night the king said, Oh, Mordecai needs to be honored for saving my life. And he called his courtier Haman in. Haman is the villain of the story. And King Ahasuerus said, Haman, what would you do to honor someone who has done good deeds for the king? Haman thought it was himself. (laughs) And he said, oh, this person should be dressed in royal finery and led through the town on the finest steed. And the king said to Haman, take Mordecai and lead him around the town because he saved my life. Haman was very unhappy and angry at this situation and decided to do in the Jews, and he encouraged the king to issue a proclamation that all Jews were to be killed on the 14th or the 15th, it varies in historical records, of Adar. Well, Mordecai got word to Esther that they're in great trouble, and Esther devised a plan to save the people. She asked the king to have two dinners. And at the second dinner, she said to the king, Oh, my king, why do you wish to kill me? I don't wish to kill you, the king says. And she said, 
but that's what's going to happen on the 14th of Adar. What he did is he issued another proclamation which allowed the Jews to fight back. So it's great, what a great holiday. We have war and we have villains and the Jews fought back and they were able to end this rather shortly. There was some bloodshed and stuff and everybody celebrates the saving of the people of Israel once again. Purim is celebrated both in the synagogue when the Megillah, which is the story of Purim, is read two times. It's read in the evening at the very beginning of the holiday and then again in the synagogue on the following morning. Both times there's great festivity during the reading. Every time the villain's name, Haman, is mentioned, the children get to spin their groggers, noisemakers, and yell boo at the villain. <laughs> and the children are encouraged to dress in costume, acting out the characters in the story. You could dress as the king or the good man, Mordecai. You could dress as Haman and wear his tri-cornered hat. And there's dozens of Queen Esthers. We have plenty of princesses these days. Those were the Queen Esthers of yore. And we celebrated another way as well. We have a community event called the Adliada, and that in this city and in many cities is celebrated in the Jewish Community Center. The center is decorated and the big hall is open up. There's all foods put out for people to eat and enjoy. The most important traditional food is hamantaschen, which is actually a cookie, and it's delicious. Oftentimes we'll make them two batches at a time because the holiday has one other wonderful element. It's called shalach manas, which is sharing your bounty. You are to bring gifts of hamantaschen and candies to your neighbors, your friends and neighbors during this holiday. In fact, every year my niece from Washington sends me shalach manas. She and her children get together, bake hamantaschen, and send them to me. That was New Orleanian B'nai Bernstein speaking to Louisiana Eats in 2011. Acclaimed author Joan Nathan has shared her pursuit of the definitive DNA of Jewish cookery in her many books covering the global Jewish diaspora. Her search has taken her to countless places across the globe, including our own state. Ten years ago, Joan traveled up and down the Mississippi River in search of Louisiana's early Jewish settlers. She joined us by phone to tell us what she discovered. Louisiana put ads in newspapers in the 19th century in Europe, in Poland, in Germany, but mostly Alsace-Lorraine, so that many people would come from the same town, and they would come together as a family and develop the different towns. So I went to a lot of river towns, and I learned the same story in every town. 
that merchants came to the river in the 19th century. Goods were sold up and down the river. So first they would act as peddlers standing out into the countryside and selling their goods. And then, of course, when they got a little bit more money, they would build their homes and they would build stores right at the river collecting the goods. With the advent of the automobile, people would go inward. And so these towns are beautiful, but they're basically left, not just by the Jewish merchants, but other merchants. And of course, malls have come into being and Walmart, so that it's really changed. Donaldsonville is a perfect example. What made Donaldsonville that perfect example? Well, because it was on the water. Jews came as peddlers. They then owned many of the main grocery stores, the department stores on the main drag. Some of them, I think it was in St. Francisville, helped fund the public school, which is now a museum, a Jewish museum, part of it, and part of it's a cultural center. With a rabbi, visited the graveyard, the Jewish graveyard. There were the Levies, Cohens, I mean, they're typical names, Jewish names. But what was so interesting is, I mean, Little Rock is far away, it's on, you know, on a different river, but it was truly the same story. Well, of um, course, all your research always leads back to the table. Well, I knew what the Jewish food was that these people ate. And, of course, most of them are intermarried now and are not in Louisiana. But the recipes that they brought with them would be matzo balls, but the real matzo balls with ginger and nutmeg, maybe with marrow in them. I think Manischewitz called them Alsatian feathery balls. They didn't use the word matzo balls. Could be made with bread or with matzo. They also ate a lot of tongue. They would eat quiches, beignets. And what was fascinating to me in doing this research and going around, I started thinking about Marcel Proust. His mother was Alsatian Jewish. And then I remember when I went to Café du Monde, they had beignets. You can see they're cut with a knife. That's exactly what Alsatian donuts that people ate for Hanukkah or Purim would have been, that the Jews would have eaten. So that you don't know if Jews brought them or just Alsatians, because there were a lot of Alsatians. But the point is that this was a regional dish that was brought by Alsatians. Oh, and I know the other thing is kugel, the kinds of kugels that they brought with them. When I was in Alsace, I kept thinking about the first time I went to Commander's Palace and the bread puddings. That's what they really were, were bread puddings. Mm. And um, they might have had prunes in them and dried pears and cooked a long time, but sort of sweet, but not too sweet. Mm-hmm. All I could think of was, you're eating this as a side course, but it sure could be a dessert in Louisiana. <laughs> it's very interesting, because then what I'm hearing is that you witness sort of the evolution of these old dishes into things that now people think are classics from here. Well, that's that's the way food travels, you know. <laughs> that's why I think it's so important to be in a place. But the problem is, today, in a lot of these little towns it's very hard to find what was. You know, in a lot of these towns, everybody's trying to be sort of upscale, and you very often have to go into homes, and there aren't any Jews that live there anymore. So in some ways, what I've done is 
found Jews from Donaldsonville that live in Washington, D.C. You've got to dig to get them. Award-winning food writer Joe Nathan speaking with us in 2012. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily, for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longlinay. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.